Well, good morning, NSA friends and family. If you are a preteen, it's your time to follow Michelle. She's up here. You can go with her. You'll have a great time. She's fantastic. We're glad you're here. Thanks for joining us online, those of you who are there. And today we get to begin a, a new sermon series. It's a shorter series. We just finished with 1 John together. And we're going to spend the next several weeks on this business I call after the resurrection. So thinking about the after effects, the aftershocks, the implications of Christ's new life. And today I want to talk about what the resurrection has to teach us about death and the afterlife. And we're going to go about this a little differently. Instead of one single text and then a series of teaching points, I've gathered 30 questions. Okay? If you've got the notes, you've got the questions in front of you, you can see what's going to happen. If you work out the timing, I've got one minute per question. I don't think I'm going to make it. Um, there's a lot of content today, so I do encourage you to buckle your seatbelts. Um, but before we begin, I want to make three important uh, notices just about this topic. The first is this, is that talk of death and the afterlife feels especially strange in our modern world. I mean, we're obsessed with it, of course. If you look at our media, it's filled with zombie stories and ghost stories and spiritualism. But our world is very happy with these things so long as they are fictional. Uh, so if the moment you start to talk about things you really believe about the afterlife, people may look at you strangely. And I think in the process, we may have forgotten that the church has very real and very tangible beliefs about the life to come. And some of these beliefs make our world uncomfortable. Second, talk of death and the afterlife draws very close to some sensitive personal areas. Almost everyone in this room has lost someone close to you, a loved one. And in the process of dealing with your grief, you've been comforted by a variety of folk beliefs that may or may not be Christian. I'm committed to the honesty and the interpretation of our Bible, and that means that some of you may hear some uncomfortable things this morning, specifically things that may take away comforts you've held on to in your laws. The third is that in dealing with death and the afterlife, there are parts where we have really clear evidence and parts where we are speculating. And I will try to, I will try to be clear about the things where we are clear, and I will also try to be clear about the places where we are speculating. And it seems to me that one of the dangers in theology is that of presenting our speculations as facts. This may comfort people in the moment, but does us no favors in the end. So with these things in mind, let's turn to 30 questions about death and the afterlife. They'll be up on the screen behind me. You've got them in your notes in front of you. Question number one is this, is there life after death? And the answer is yes. yes. Oh, good. I'm glad. You guys won't be able to answer all these questions with me. Okay. Now, our belief about this is grounded in the resurrection. And apart from Jesus, um, apart from Jesus, the death rate of humanity sits at a cool 100%. Okay. Sit with that for a second. We have a 100% death rate. Everybody dies. Okay. Um, and we can pretend this isn't true. And we can ignore the death problem. And we can bury it, haha, by hiding it in our cemeteries and even hiding our cemeteries out of sight so you can drive uh, for hours through a city like ours and never come across a single burial area, right? We're hiding it. Uh, instead, um, 
Um, we only have one person who's come back from the dead, and that's Jesus. And let's be honest, he didn't tell us a great deal about what it was like. And so we're left to infer from some key passages. So let's take a look at um, Luke chapter 24, verses 33 and 43. This is the end of the Emmaus Road encounter. And so Jesus has appeared to the disciples on the road, and he's been manifest to them, and they get pretty excited. Verse 33, and they got up at that very hour and returned to Jerusalem, the disciples, and found together gathered the 11 and those who were with them, saying, the Lord has risen from the dead, really, and has appeared to Simon. They began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. While they were telling these things, Jesus himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, have you here anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. So what is it that Luke is trying to teach us in this? Well, first, that Jesus was physical. He wasn't a spirit. He could be touched. He ate fish. One of my professors in university said to me once, what happened to the fish? I don't know. He was seen by everyone in the room, so he wasn't a hallucination. It wasn't something they imagined. Uh, he could apparently pass through walls. That's interesting. And he could also hide people from recognizing him. That was the key point of the Emmaus Road encounter, is that their eyes were prevented from seeing him. So let's be super clear here. We, Christians, we believe that a man came back from the dead. This is our most important belief, in fact. And without it, the whole edifice of Christianity comes crashing down around us. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 19. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Okay? If he didn't rise from the dead, if we're only in this life that we have hope, then we're dumb. And this is an utter waste of our time. But if he did rise from the dead, then everything changes because of it. And our evidence for life after death is the evidence of Christ's resurrected body. And Paul, in the very next verse, explains what this means for us. First Corinthians 15, 20, he says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. That phrase, firstfruits, is important. It means that what happened to Christ is a promise of what is to come. Okay? So it's the first crop, but there's a whole wealth of resurrections coming afterwards. And what happened to him will happen to all who believe in him. So yes, there is life after death, and Christ is both the evidence and the pattern of that life, okay? First question takes the longest amount of time. The next ones go a little quicker. Question number two, what kind of life is it? The answer is it's life in a new body. Life in a new body. Our afterlife will be an embodied life. It's not ghost life. It's not spirit life. And for this, we look at a passage like 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 to 55. Paul writes this, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet... For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. 
For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? In the resurrection, the general resurrection, the one at the end of time, we anticipate a physical transformation from temporary to permanent, from corrupted to incorruptible, from mortal to immortal. So life in a new body. So this leads to the third question, which is, do we go to heaven when we die? And the answer for this third question is, maybe. Okay? Maybe. So why do I say maybe? Look with me for a second at the book of Luke, chapter 23. Familiar story, 23, verses 39 to 43. Jesus on the cross. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at Jesus, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, the other criminal, and rebuking him said, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. So what does Jesus mean by this? It sounds pretty straightforward, but it's actually not. Paradise means garden. Paradesos is an ancient word for garden. It may or may not mean heaven, especially since by all accounts, Jesus descends to the place of dead. He goes to Sheol on that day. And he's hanging out there through the entire Sabbath. And then he raises to life on Sunday. And he doesn't ascend to heaven until some weeks later. Jesus doesn't go to heaven that day. So wherever he is by today, it's not, he's with Jesus, but it doesn't necessarily mean heaven. Tricky, huh? It's also very clear, however, that our final stop for humans, excuse me, sorry, Since Jesus doesn't go to paradise, what does Jesus mean here? The answer is, this is why it's a maybe. We don't know, okay? But what is going on, it's clearly the case that our final stop as humanity isn't heaven. This is the next question. Wait, don't we spend the afterlife in heaven? And the answer is, no. Some of you just got nervous, okay? Key takeaway, heaven isn't the afterlife. The afterlife is the new earth. Heaven isn't the afterlife. The afterlife is the new earth. Look with me at the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verses 1 and 2, where John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband." Now, the point of a passage like this is that when everything is said and done, when the whole business of Christ's return and judgment is complete, then the afterlife isn't up, it's here. God remakes this world and populates it with people. doesn't send us off into the sky. Okay? Question five. Where are dead people now? Answer. Some are with Jesus. Others, we're not so sure. Again, Luke 22, 43, and Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Now, we may not fully understand what Jesus means in the passage, but we can take comfort from the fact that the, our beloved dead, wherever they are and in whatever state they are, are with Jesus in his presence. 
And we don't want to promise more than that. Now, remember that since Jesus is the first fruit of the resurrection, he's the promise of what's to come as well, the Bible promises a full resurrection at the time of judgment. And this means that there's a gap between our deaths and that earthly re-embodiment. And stating with confidence where people are during that gap goes beyond what the Scripture teaches. The Scriptures don't inform us about this, so it's best to leave it. Question number six, will we have wings? The answer, no. Humans don't have wings. Angels have wings. You won't be transformed into an angel. You'll be transformed into a full and complete human, which is a different thing. If you're curious, the myth that humans become angels begins with Harriet Beecher Stowe during the American Civil War. And she's the one who writes about this and creates this idea, probably dealing with the anxiety of so much grief over so much death um, is one of the ways this comes out. Question seven, will we get superpowers? Answer, it depends, okay? We looked already at the Luke 24 passage um, where Jesus appears to have power over nature. Remember, like he can walk through walls and he can make himself recognizable and unrecognizable at, at will and he can transport his body across distances, right? Jesus appears to have some facility of power over nature. And if Jesus' resurrection is the promise and pattern for our resurrection, then it looks like we might expect to have some similar power over nature like he does. I think that's interesting. Now, I want to say this. I want to speak a warning, and I want to talk about this uh, belief system we have called transhumanism. You may be familiar with it. You may not. It's the idea that the goal of our species is to transcend ourselves, to become the next stage of human evolution, the next thing that's going to be greater and better. And so this is the end game of movies like 2001, A Space Odyssey where he passes through this mysterious machine and becomes a spirit hovering in supernatural power over the earth, or television shows like Ghost in the Shell or Altered Carbon. They represent the hope that we'll find a way to make our meat suits exchangeable, right? Like I can reduce myself to a computer chip and plug and play myself in any body that I see fit, or I could become a computer, or I can change myself into an animal or anything I like. And what this always means is that your physical body becomes disposable, upgradable, Flexible, you can do what you want with it. It's ultimately dehumanizing. You can always use other people's bodies to do things that you want to do. And the goal of our species is to transcend the bounds of our flesh. This is what transhumanism is all about. And I want you to observe very clearly that Jesus is not a transhuman. He's not the next stage in human evolution. He's fully human. He is what humanity was always meant to be and become and what we fell short of being and becoming. And that means that Jesus is the real human, and we are in relation to him what shadows are in light of the object which has created the shadow. We're ephemeral. He's real. Jesus reveals what Adam and Eve were always meant to be, but failed to become. If this is right, and I do believe it is, then it looks like in our full humanity we may have some power over matter that we don't have now. Remember in the Genesis 2 account that we are created as dust plus the Spirit of God. We're material with God's Spirit. And in the fall, we put our material stuff in priority over God's Spirit. And in redemption, Christ put God's Spirit in priority over matter. 
And this changes the relationship to the material world. Christ is the only being, the only human in the world who has this relationship sorted. We're going to come back to some of this stuff in a minute. But for now, let's go to question number eight, which is how will the body be reconstituted? Like, how is it all going to get back together? What's with what materials? And the answer is, we don't know. It's a good answer. Are you going to have the exact same atoms in the resurrection that you have right now, right? Like you worried, like, let's say there's a terrible accident and um, one of you, let's say we're, one of you is skydiving with a bomb, all right, because you think this is exciting. And while you're skydiving with a bomb, the bomb unfortunately goes off and you are scattered to the four winds. At the resurrection, do all those pieces have to get back together somehow, Right? What if they've been completely obliterated? How, you know, it could create some anxieties if you have to have the exact same atoms. Um, I used to, I was traveling once in Washington, D.C. with a friend of ours. Her name is Morag. She's a lovely Scottish woman. And I took a sip from a water fountain, and she turned to me and she said, George Washington drank that water. If you think about it, that's kind of creepy. George Washington did drink that water, and then it left him as well as all of his atoms and all of his pieces, and we're maybe a bit more interconnected biologically than I think we like to admit, okay? We like to think of ourselves as having perfect integrity. This raises a bigger question. What makes for continuity? How do you have continuity with your body right now? And actually, if you think about it, we change the atoms in our bodies pretty regularly. You don't have the same exact set of atoms you had when you were born. Are you a different person because of that? So I think we've got good solutions to this stuff, and I think some people are really quite worried about their bodies, and they want them preserved at all costs, and so they invest in things like cryo-freezing and embalming and mummification, so they'll have the exact same body, but looks rather like God will make just new bodies for us. There's enough atoms to go around. All that to say, if you're worried about being cremated, don't worry about it. God's got it sorted, okay? Question nine, will we recognize one another? And the answer is, sometimes. Remember, Jesus is our pattern, and we've got the Emmaus Road story. Uh, In Luke 24, while they were walking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. So that Jesus had the power of being recognized and not recognized. When he meets Mary in the garden, it's the same situation. He's not recognized. But then when he shows up to John at the beginning of Revelation, he's this wild figure. He's got a sword coming out of his mouth, and his face shines. He's got like a bronze chest and all this stuff. And John has no trouble recognizing who it is. He knows on the spot. So there's some power of recognition that, transcends, that that's, excuse me, transcends mere appearance. And so sometimes we will be recognizable. Question 10, what age will I be? The answer is, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Resurrection involves transformation. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 says this. Paul writes, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await for a Savior, Christ, the Lord Christ Jesus, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has, he has even to subject all things to himself. What will this transformation mean for your physical age? I don't know. All I can guess is that inasmuch as Jesus points to our perfect humanity, somehow in the resurrection we'll each be perfect. That's all I know. Question 11, will I be fully healed? The answer is probably. Okay. 
Paul says the body is sown corruptible, but we were raised incorruptible. So it looks like the new body will be impervious to sickness and disease. However, when Jesus meets Thomas, it's pretty notable that he still has his wounds. He's got the nail wounds in his hands and in his side and in his feet. So Jesus holds on to his wounds. Does that mean he's not fully healed? Do you see why this is a bit messy? I'd like to think sometimes that maybe, like, if you've been martyred, like, do you have to, if your head was cut off, do you carry it around? And yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Now, it's possible that there are some things that we think are wrong in our bodies that aren't actually wrong. And we'll find out in the afterlife that they weren't problems in the first place. And I'll give you one example to ponder. Um, We commonly think that Down syndrome children are defective. But what if they're just different? What if in God's eyes it's not a defect? And they'll be Down syndrome in heaven. I don't know. If that's the case, then it suggests that our genetic screening has performed a genocide against people who are just different than us. Again, whatever's the case in the afterlife, it will be right and good. Question 12. Am I still married? Some of you will be very relieved at this answer. No. Okay. Uh, Matthew chapter 22 makes this extremely clear. The Sadducees come to Jesus with this question about marriage in the afterlife. And Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Not that they have wings, but they are like angels. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, I'm going to give you a complex answer quite quickly. Marriage always pointed to something else. And in the Bible, marriage always points to God's relationship with us, which is framed as a marriage covenant between God, the covenant-making God, and Israel, his bride. Always a marriage relationship. And that, my friends, is why the church is female, because we have this marriage relationship promise between us and God. And in the same way that Christ's perfection is the real image of which our bodies are mere shadows, so also every human marriage is a shadow of that real relationship between God and his people. And when we've got the real thing, when we're face-to-face with God in the new heaven and the new earth, then marriages will be fulfilled. It's like trading the token for the real thing. You don't need the image anymore. You have the real. And we won't be married in the afterlife because we won't need it any longer. We'll have that for which marriage was always the purpose. Question 13. Do I get my new body right away when I die? And the answer is no. No. Look with me at Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Uh, Daniel writes very evocatively, Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such has never occurred since there was a nation until that time, And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust are dead of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So bodies are redistributed at the general resurrection and the judgment, not before. So you get your body for the sake of standing before God in judgment. Question 14, can I be human without a body? 
No. No, you can't. Genesis 2, God made you, and he made you material and spiritual together at the same time. Matter plus the spirit of God. And we should get very nervous about any doctrine which demands a floaty, disembodied human spirit thing when clearly in Scripture what it means to be human is to exist in this unique tension between the spiritual and the material. God made humans. He liked it that way. This is what he wanted was us to live in this kind of way. And he intends for us to be human, fully human, in the afterlife he's made for us. So let me put this one other way. Salvation is not freedom from your body. It's not escape from material constraints. It's being made right in the bodies God has designed for us. Okay. Very different. Question 15. What about reincarnation? Answer, no. Hebrews 9.27 is pretty clear. Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment, that's it. No do-overs. You get one life and then it's over. This is what God says. 16, won't eternal life be boring? Answer, no. If you think eternal will mean the prolongation without variation, like an endless worship service, or an endless prayer meeting, or the preacher who just won't shut up, <laughs> then you've missed the meaning. It's wickedness that's monotonous. Wickedness is boring. Goodness is an infinite variety. Most people's picture of heaven is actually more like this cartoon. I love this. The caption says, I always figured hell would be less ironic. Most people's idea of sitting on clouds with wings and harps and halos. That's, that's the endless monotony of hell, not the infinite variety and joy and glory of heaven. Okay? Heaven is the unlosable presence of an eternal, infinite, and immeasurably good God. Heaven is as good as God is without any of our muck-about liabilities. You can't ruin it. 17. This is the question that's deep in many of your hearts. Is there chocolate in the new earth? And the answer is, <laughs> I certainly hope so. If there is something that is good on earth, the goodness here is a copy or a shadow of the goodness that's to come. And the adjective heavenly really means that in this moment, I'm having a taste of what's to come. It means in this moment, I'm getting a foretaste of what's really good that sits behind it. And so if I have for myself a heavenly bowl of ramen, what I'm saying is this bowl of ramen is a foretaste of the glorious perfection that is the bowl of noodles in heaven. Okay? All goodness draws its life from God. Question 18, what will we do there? The answer is, we'll be fully human be fully human. St. Irenaeus says in the second century, he says, the glory of God is man fully alive. It's one of my favorite quotes in theology. The glory of God is man fully alive. God is most glorified when we are most alive in him. And we are made, of course, to be gardeners, to look after and enjoy his earth. And so there's work and there's play and there's the enjoyment of God's creation and of God and of one another in perfect relationship. 
And we think because we can say the name God and enjoy God that maybe we understand it, just like we think that because we can write that symbol for infinity, you know, the Mobius ring turned on its side, we think that because we can write the symbol, we understand infinity. You don't understand infinity. If I say that someone is infinitely good, it means that no matter how long or how closely you look, you'll never get to the end of it. Never, ever. It'll always be new. And that's pretty cool. Number 19. Is my loved one watching me now? And the answer is, maybe. Maybe. Again, this is the third time we've looked at this, but Luke 22, Jesus said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. We know that the blessed dead are with Jesus. What we don't know is what kind of consciousness they have. We, we don't know. We don't know what it's like to be with Jesus in that state. We don't know what they're thinking about or doing. Now, modifying this, we have a passage like Hebrews 12.1, the first 12.1a, where the author of Hebrews writes, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, and so he's picturing this massive group of people sitting around us watching our faith, and we have to be careful about literal versus figurative language, but it looks like we can argue that our blessed dead are watching and supporting and the image there is of like stands, like a stadium of stands, like we're running the race and they're sitting in the stands cheering us on. I don't know. Number 20, are there ghosts? The answer, probably not. Probably not. The blessed dead are immediately with Jesus. This is today you'll be with me. The non-blessed dead are somewhere else. They're not floating around uncertain. It's not like there's accidents. And so this means that a few other sub-questions. Are there demons who imitate ghosts? Yes. Okay. Are there people who will deceive you, like mediums and spiritists? Yes. Is there fractured psychology that imprints our loved ones on our experiences? Where in our grief, we, we are creating things? I think yes. All these are the case but are there ghosts? No. 21, is it okay to speak to the dead? The answer is, it depends. Okay? Specifically, it depends on what you mean by speaking to the dead. If you mean by this, is it okay for me to try and contact my loved ones from beyond the grave, then no. No, it's not okay. There's a temptation to seek spiritual power now, to consult mediums, to seek the presence of ghosts, to try to get a message from beyond for the sake of curiosity or of closure or because your grief is simply too much. I promise you that if you seek the voices of the dead in this way, you will not be hearing from Christ, but from either charlatans or from demons. You're not going to hear from Jesus. But there's another aspect of this which makes things really tricky. Look again with me at Matthew 22, verses 29 to 32. This is the answer about the marriage that Jesus gives. But look at verse 31. And regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. If we believe this, and I suggest that you should take Jesus at his word, then all our loved ones in Christ are truly alive in his presence. They're not dead, they're alive. And if they're alive, then it, maybe it's not that weird to talk to them. 
Look again at Hebrews 12. I'll look at verses, both verses this time, 1 and 2. Author of Hebrews writes, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangle us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So there's this great and awesome communion of saints, this vast company of those who have gone before us, and they're all in the stands rooting and cheering for God's people here on earth. It's like they're, they're cheering for us, and I kind of think that like maybe waving to the stands isn't so weird. Nodding to the people who are there, saying, hi, Mom. I think that's probably okay. But note, of course, for the author of Hebrews, where ultimate attention is on, our eyes are fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And this brings up a very important distinction between praying to and praying with. We don't pray to anyone but God. He's the only suitable being in the universe to receive prayer. However, since we believe in this great cloud of living witnesses, living saints, technically all of our prayers are prayers with the entire communion of believers throughout history. And so I don't think it's that unreasonable to consciously pray alongside those who've gone ahead of us, so long as we really keep clear the distinction between praying to and praying along with. 22, what happens to people who don't believe? The answer is judgment without the protection of Christ. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15 makes this pretty explicit. Then I saw, John, a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence the earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them, so there's no escape. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The scriptures testify to the fact that if you don't accept Christ's work, you're judged on your own personal merits, and nobody's got it together. Nobody's got it sorted. Question 23, what about people who never hear? The answer is, I'm not sure. I can't claim to know perfectly how God is going to judge the world because he alone knows our hearts and knows what's inside us. One thing I will say with confidence is this. God is perfectly just. Whatever he does, when we see it, we'll agree that it was right and it was fair and it was good. But we've really got to be careful right now that we don't assume that we know what's right and good. We can't be so sure of those things, but we can trust that God knows exactly what's right and good. There is a suggestion. This is from Romans chapter 2, verses 27 to 29. I'll read it for you. I'm not so sure how helpful it is, but let's look at it anyway. And he who is physically uncircumcised, who's not a covenant person, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who through having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? So there's a law of our hearts and a law in our bodies. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor a circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. 
But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and the praise is not from men, but from God. Are there two strains? Is there an inner law and an outer law? I don't know. Maybe not, according to the judgment passages. Chapter, uh, verse, question 24, what about the unborn, or people who die young? The answer is, I'm not sure. There's no clear scripture for us here, and I don't want to overpromise. We don't know how God builds humans. Uh, we don't know when we're accountable. Like, if you're not able to sin, how can you be held accountable for sin? We don't know how God accounts for the debt of sin and how it gets transmitted from person to person. And once again, we've got to rely on the fact that when I'm on whatever it is, it will be perfectly just and right. What we do know, however, is that Jesus loves kids. Uh, Matthew 19, you know this passage. Uh, then some children were brought to Jesus so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked them, tried to send the kids away. But Jesus said, let them look alone and do not hinder them from coming to me. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And after laying hands on them, he departed from them. Jesus loves kids. Okay? We also know from Matthew 18 that Jesus takes the harm of children very seriously. This is Matthew 18, 1 to 6. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus called a child to himself and set the child before them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Uh, one Bible commentator many years ago mused on, he says, does he mean the upper millstone or the lower millstone, right? Because there's a different size of stone. I want to suggest to you that if you have a thousand pound stone tied around your neck and are thrown into the sea, it doesn't matter which stone it is. You're dead. What happens to those who fall away? Question 25. The answer is, it depends. It depends. And this is complex and probably needs a lot more, but uh, there's three things to say. One, if salvation is really God's work from first to last, do we really have power to undo what God has done? Can we really ruin salvation? Like, if I didn't earn it and I didn't win it, can I really unmake it? I'm not sure that I have power over God in that way. I'm not sure about that. Uh, but then there's other special circumstances. What about people who have dementia, Alzheimer's, or mental illnesses, and those lead to irrational actions at the end of life? If you have 50 years of faithfulness and the last year of your life you begin to lose your mind and you deny Christ in those moments, is that, does that determine these things for you? And I think the answer is no. I think God looks at the whole of life. I think he doesn't look at the last five seconds and said, you know, you ran a great race, but you tripped in the last minutes, you're done. I think God looks at the whole. Um, but I also think that the scriptures point to the fact that if we do consciously reject Christ, I think he gives us what we ask for. So that's why I say it depends. And we have to be really um, cautious in passing judgments about people who we think have walked away because we don't know how God sees things. So be cautious. Number 26, what kind of a place is hell? The answer, the kind of place you want to avoid. We have images of the lake of fire, of eternal judgment. These are metaphors, so it's really difficult to say what kind of place it actually might be. But we can think of it maybe in a few different ways. 
One, we can think of it as separation from the life of God. If God's life really is as good as we think it is, then being removed from that is its own awfulness. Okay? To see goodness and not be able to touch it. It looks like there's a moment of reunion with the body at the general resurrection. Restoration, and with that restoration, awareness of the potential for experiencing all that life has to offer, and then the permanent recognition that you're prohibited from ever experiencing it. Or perhaps the holiness of God is experienced, how would it be experienced to an unredeemed person, a person unprotected by the love of Christ? Um, like being exceptionally pale-skinned and sent to live in a hot climate for the rest of your life. I don't know. Speaking of which, I just want to point out that in the creed, we affirm that Jesus is Lord of heaven, and he's Lord of earth, and also that he's descended to the place of dead. Jesus is Lord of all realms of being. So if you think Satan's in charge of hell, you're wrong. He's not in charge. He's an inmate. Jesus is in charge. <coughs> 27, will only a few be saved? I think the answer is yes and no. Uh, Revelation 7.4 has this number, and I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Um, numbers in John's Revelation are always figurative. 144,000 is 12 times 12 times 10 times 10 times 10. So 12 is the perfect tribes. You multiply things to show their magnified perfection. So three tens and two twelves. Um, it just means complete, the perfectly complete number. Everyone who's supposed to be there will be there. That's what that means. Um, and so that's not a limiting number. That's a number to point to perfection. Uh, but then we get a passage like Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there may many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find us. So there are a lot of us or there are few of us. And it's hard to say. Um, I think that God, I, I don't think I take comfort in the fact that God is more gracious than I am. He's more lavish with his mercy than I am. But I also know that it's not easy. We have to obey. So I think uh, don't, don't rest in your comforts, but trust in the mercy of God. And we have to trust in that goodness and that what he does will be just and right and appropriate. Uh, somewhere in mere Christianity, Lewis says of heaven, he says, there will be surprises when we get there. And I'm inclined to agree with him. We'll look around and be like, oh, you're, oh, you're here. Didn't wow. Okay. Oh, that person's not here. I certainly thought they, oh boy. Okay. Surprises. Question 28. Is there purgatory? The answer is no. Maybe. Okay. okay. Uh, if you mean, is there an interim state where humans pay for their sins to add to Christ's work of redemption, then absolutely not. That's not the case. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Okay? One and done for Jesus. It's all paid for. There's no extra payment. But if you mean, if you suggest, is there some stage of purification where we are washed before entering into the presence of Jesus, then maybe. So imagine that you, as you are right now, you show up, and God says, welcome, you're welcome in my kingdom, come on inside. And you say, that's great, Lord, but can I have a bath first? If the bath hurts a little bit, I think you wouldn't be bothered by it. You'd have a sense of make me clean. And so if there is some kind of 
purgatory. It's just like a bathing chamber. Okay, that's, we're all, I told you this is speculation, so we don't know. He didn't tell us. So this has been quite a full Sunday, and we've covered a huge range of topics, and I imagine that some of your heads are spinning. But before I address the last two questions, I want to stress the two most important teachings from our time. We've got two more questions, but I want to see the two most important things, and they're this. Number one, there is life after death, and we know it through Christ's resurrection. There is life after death, and we know it through the resurrection. And number two, life after death means being with Jesus. Those are the two most important things. You can toss everything else I've said. Okay? Life after death, being with Jesus. But these last two questions, I want to give us a chance to pray together after we've discussed each of them. And actually, as we're winding up to this, I'm going to invite the musicians to come and take their place as we talk about these things. Question 29 is this. What if I'm afraid to die? What if I'm afraid to die? The answer is, if you've trusted in Jesus, there's nothing to fear. If you've trusted in Jesus, there's nothing to fear. Look at John 14 with me. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If this is you this morning, and if you've been afraid of death, I want us to pray together right now. Would you bow your heads with me and let me lead you in prayer? And so if you're afraid, if you've had that fear, let's pray this now. Jesus, I thank you that you've died and come back to life. And that because you have gone ahead of us, we have nothing to be afraid of in our own deaths. If there are any here today who are afraid, would you draw near by your spirit and comfort them in the knowledge that you are powerful, that you have conquered, that you are just, and that you are very, very good. Lord, lock into our hearts the knowledge that as long as we cling to you, we need never fear death. Amen. And question 30, how can I get eternal life? And the answer is, place your trust in Jesus. I'll read you three scriptures as we finish. Acts chapter 16, um, Paul and Silas are in jail, and the jail doors have opened, and the jailer freaked out. And Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, fell down before Paul and Silas and after he brought them out said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And John 7 verses 37 says this, now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit whom those who believed him, him were to receive. The Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And then the verses perhaps you know quite well, John 3.16, but let's read the rest of the paragraph. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, 
that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light. Their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. If this is you this morning and you never prayed to receive Christ and receive his eternal life, then let's bow our heads before we worship and pray. I invite you to pray with me if this is you. Jesus, you have said that all we need to do to receive your life is believe. Today I've heard good news about life after death, and I want to believe. Lord, I am a sinner who needs your help. Forgive me and fill me with your spirit so that I can have the eternal life you promised. Amen.